Right. Well, it's been a little while since we've been looking at this, and just to remind you what's been happening in Mark's Gospel very, very quickly. Uh, it says that Jesus is coming right at the beginning, in the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist came and promising that after him would come the Lord. And Jesus arrives and we begin to get fascinated by the sort of person Jesus is, the sort of program that he has, the sort of uh, um, things that he does, and there's these snapshots of things at once he does this and at once he does that. And you, you have a sequence of illustrations of snapshots of his, particularly of his authority. Uh, that the, the announcement says that the kingdom of God is at hand, and then you start to see what, what it's like if the king is there. So you get Satan, uh, uh, demons cast out, you get the leper cleansed, you get sins forgiven, you get sinners called. Uh, so you get that in the first two or three chapters, and then you get some teaching, and then you get another, perhaps a slightly longer set of incidents that are full of implications, and again pose the question, uh, who is Jesus? What is his power? Uh, how are we to relate to him? And right at the beginning of the gospel, he is uh, very, very popular, so popular that he's got no room to to breathe really, uh, people just falling over themselves to come and hear what he has to say. But as things develop, we find that there are notes of opposition and rejection. So he's been accepted with popularity, but in the chapters that we were looking at uh, last, uh, last time, uh, we began to see rejection. So at the beginning of chapter six, you have him going to his hometown, and people have this amazement, but they start to ask, in chapter 6, verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him that he even does miracles? And they begin to say, well, it, it, he's just the lad from around the corner. And his familiarity becomes a stumbling block. And they, it says they take offense at him. Uh, and uh, so Jesus encounters rejection. And in this context... He sends out the 12, this is chapter 6, verses 7, 8, and onwards. So Jesus' ministry begins to go up a notch as he sends people out to go round to different places to circulate, and they sort of replicate the ministry of Jesus uh, in the various villages around. And so it, that's the bit of the sandwich that we're in. Uh, so they, they are going out, and we're wondering what response they get. In verse 30, the apostles gather round Jesus and report to him all that they had done and taught. So that's, that's where we're at very briefly. And in the middle of the sandwich, uh, the bit that was read, we find what the response is. Not, we're not going now into villages, uh, we're in the seat of power, King Herod and his palace and his parties and his mates. And that's what we're going to look at 
And I think, to be honest, I've only got one or two points to make, so it would be good of me not to wrap them up with a huge number of words, but uh, let's, uh, let's see what this... What's this going to show us? It will show us how the gospel was received among what they would have called the great and the good. I don't think they're particularly good. I'm not sure they're particularly great either. But um, the, the, you see the list of them, verse 21. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So they're the top people. It'd be Sir, so-and-so, so-and-so. A few MPs would be there. Um, you know, the uh, notable people, probably somebody who'd been a finalist in the Great British Bake Off or something like that. They would have, or the Jewish Bake Off or the Galilee Bake Off. It, all the, the, the great and the good people would have been, been there. Uh, so it shows us that. It also shows us, uh, in passing, what Jesus' public image was in verse 14. Because uh, what were people saying about Jesus at this stage in his ministry? Some were saying, verse 14, some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. You know, there's no shortage of willingness to believe in supernatural things. It's almost a bit superstitious, isn't it? There's no shortage of willingness to believe in supernatural things. But willingness to believe in supernatural things isn't the same thing as believing in Jesus. It's just not. Excuse me one moment while I take this off. Verse 15, others are saying, he is Elijah. So this is a reference to one of the famous prophets in the Old Testament. So the days of Elijah have come back. These great, powerful, revival, influential preachers. And then others are saying, verse 15, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. So these are the ideas that people have. What Jesus' public image? They're not totally clear, are they? Uh, it's John the Baptist resurrected somehow. It's Elijah, one of the great prophets, or one of the great figures from the past, or one of the prophets like in the Old Testament. So that's Jesus' public image. Not entirely clear, are they? Another thing that it shows us is, is the, it forewarns us of the cost of spreading the gospel for faithful witnesses. So it sounds a very jarring note in that we've had a lot of popularity for Jesus. Uh, and then here we get this sort of jarring note. Here is John the Baptist who's been totally faithful, totally courageous, totally straight. And what does he get for his troubles? Well, he gets his head cut off. And it sounds a little bit of a warning note. What will happen, well, to other followers? In particular, what will happen to Jesus? And there are quite a few sort of echoes of what will happen to Jesus. For example, verse 29, uh, when, when John has been decapitated, the disciples come and take his body and lay it in a tomb. Well, that's what will happen to Jesus, isn't it? His, uh, well, some of his followers will come and take his body and lay it in a tomb. For John the Baptist, uh, Herod thought he'd well and truly solved the problem, uh, although it did come back to haunt him, as it were. But when Jesus was laid in a, in a tomb, um, that really was only just the beginning, wasn't it?
Do you agree with me? When Jesus' body was laid in the tomb, that wasn't the end. That was sort of just the beginning. And uh, the, the thing that I'd like us to think about this evening, it gives us a really dramatic illustration of the dangers of spiritual paralysis. It's really a, a, a very dramatic and colorful illustration of that. So when Dick Lucas uh, gave his lectures on this, he said something like, well, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to see this example of first century preaching lifted straight from the mouths of the preacher onto the page of Mark's gospel? Or something like that is what he said. So let's, uh, just a couple of other things to note that the story is told by a flashback. Did you notice that? Uh, where we are at in verses 14, 15, 16 is what they make of Jesus. And somebody, they're saying, well, it could be John the Baptist. And Herod is saying, yeah, it is John the Baptist. I, I feel in my guts this is John the Baptist come back to, to haunt me. The man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. And then we get the flashback. It doesn't go on in time order, does it? It flashes back to how he came to behead John the Baptist. So that's just a notice. That's the way the, the narration goes. And then also, would you mind noticing there are some speed markers? Uh, they turn out to be quite important. But notice them. Uh, verse 25 at once, there's a, a Greek word, there's a couple of Greek words quite similar, evthes and evthios, which mean immediately. And there are, uh, they're, they're in here, verse 25, at once. And you, do you notice this? I want you to give me right now. And verse 27, immediately he sent an executioner. So notice that, uh, and actually in verse 25, the girl hurried, it says, uh, with speed. So there are a, a number of indications of the velocity of the narrative of the story in there, which turn out to be quite important later. So here, I've just got a couple, of, um, a couple of screens to take us through this story. Uh, so here we are in verse 17, uh, going back and in a flashback, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. And then we flash back again. Why did he do that? Well, he did it because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Now, I didn't have time to do a lot of homework on Herodias, but what I see of her, I really would have advised him to marry someone else. Uh, wouldn't, do, you, do, you, do you get, I, I don't like her at all. I don't like her at all. There is some, uh, so on Facebook, uh, Herodias, it, it would have said, you know, there's a button, uh, married, single, it's complicated. This one would have been, it's complicated. Because she had married um, another member of this family, and one of the commentaries has got a, a sort of family tree, and it's got lines going all over the place of people who divorced somebody else and married their stepdaughter and stepsister, and just, it's just totally, totally complicated. And they've all got the same name as well, which just, just baffles me completely. Uh, she divorced her husband, Philip. Now then, in Jewish law, 
you're not, women are not allowed to divorce their husbands. Uh, so, you know, that is a, she's, she's outside Jewish tradition straight away. In Roman law, it was permissible. Uh, but now we're talking about the Roman law, which is really all over the place. If we think that our current laws of marriage are a bit off beam, that they're really nothing compared with how things were in, in Roman society. She, uh, so she divorced Philip, who had another name. Josephus refers to him by another name. Okay, it just gets very, very complicated. So she marries this chap, Herod, who himself was already married. So he divorced his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. His brother hadn't died. His brother was still alive. I think it was his half-brother or something like that. Very complicated. Uh, and when Herod Antipas divorced his wife, if I got this correct, she was the daughter of the king of Petra, which is one of those, which is this, that city where Raiders of the Lost Ark was filmed, isn't it? Something like that. The Raiders, not, Raiders of the Lost Ark was not filmed then. It was filmed more recently. Um, and um, so he, he caused a war over this particular divorce. Um, so I haven't read up on it. It just says that it was a cause of war. Whether What happened with the war, I don't know. But you see how terribly complicated this situation is. So there they are. Uh, Herod had given orders to have John arrested and had him put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The word lawful meaning um, not, not being derived from the Greek for law, but meaning it's not fitting, it's not appropriate for you to have your brother's wife. In Jewish law, if the brother had died and needed somebody to carry on the line, then I think that would have been permissible, but to, for her to divorce the chap while he's still alive and then remarry, John says this is, this is totally out of order. Now, let's think about Herod being a king. It says he's the king. Uh, again, the commentaries say that technically he wasn't the king. He was the sort of local governor, but he behaved like a king. Well, I'm not sure whether he behaved like a king. He behaved like the sort of king he would like to behave like and like to be called a king. So, that, so Mark calls him a king. And you can see what a, what a king is like in Herod's estimation. A king is just somebody who can send off and have somebody arrested because he tells you that your marital life is out of order. Because that's what happened, isn't it? John the Baptist had been saying, you're way out of order. And verse 17, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison because of this. That's an interesting way for a king to behave. It makes you think uh, we have a lot to be grateful for in the sort of order of society that we have. Uh, that, that wouldn't be allowed, would it? The, the other members of parliament, the uh, judiciary, uh, the press would say, this is just not on. But Herod didn't have any of those constraints. If he didn't like what somebody said, he could have him arrested, and that's what he did. John had confronted him, saying it's not fitting, hence John's arrest. And verse 19 
NIV says Herodias nursed a grudge against John. The Greek just uses a word for possession. It says that so Herodias had something. And we would say she had it in for. And it just fits the Greek actually. So Herodias, the woman, had it in for John. Can you get the sense of that? You know, she's schemed and plotted her way to marry this king. Nothing has stood in her way. And this evangelical preacher has the gall to go public and criticize her, and she has it in for him. That's the situation. You get the feeling of it? Yeah. Um, now, she wanted to kill him. So I don't think, I don't think she's a nice lady. I don't think Herod married her because of her gentle, tactful, uh, feminine um, uh, skills and, and grace. I think she's a horrible woman. Uh, a little bit like Jezebel who married a Ahab uh, back in the Old Testament. She, she was a, a scheming woman. Uh, she, do you remember that she put her husband up to incriminating with the vineyard Naboth. Am I right? Are they with the right person? Yeah, and you get the same sort of thing here that uh, the, uh, this horrible woman is really the driving force behind this, uh, this, this turn of events. She wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. And please savor what is said about Herod. Herod, listen to it, he feared John. He'd arrested him, but he feared John. And he protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And Herod heard John. What should we do this afternoon? I don't know, the diary's a bit empty. Have we still got that John down in the prison? Yeah. Bring him up. Let him give me one of his sermons because I really like to listen to what he has to say. He heard him and he was greatly perplexed. I heard him yesterday. Do you know I'm thinking about it? I can't come to a conclusion. He was greatly perplexed, but he liked to listen to him. And what a situation Herod is in. Just think of those, that mixture of descriptions. He's taken action against him. He's had him arrested. But he fears him. The king fears this preacher. He fears him, presumably gets to his conscience. And the king can't just brush it off and say, you know, you don't have my education. You certainly don't have my money. Don't, want, don't take any notice of you. There's something about him in which Herod says, you know, he's just an ignorant peasant but he does say something that's true. And I can't get it out of my mind that what he's saying is true. You know, he fears John. And he respects him. He knows that he's righteous and holy. And I think that's a, what a great thing to say of somebody, isn't it? You know, he gets under my skin. Um, my wife would like to have him killed. 
but he's a, he, you know, I wish I could live like him. He's a righteous man, and he's a holy man. You know, he has a quality about him. And even if you put him in prison, knock him about a bit, probably, I don't know what they did, he's still a righteous man and a holy man, and you can't deny it. It's interesting, you know, that that's the situation that Herod's in. And he's fascinated with him. He likes to hear. Give me that one again. You know, tell me that one about the Psalms. I like that sermon you have about the Psalms. Tell me that. And what about the Christ? That's an interesting one too. He's fascinated by this man and what he has to say. And he's perplexed. It's the same word as where, where, where what does it say? We're perplexed but not something, not not cast down, I can't remember. Is it not in despair? Yes. But that's what he's, he's perplexed. Can't make up his mind. You know, I can't make up my mind about this chap. Let me hear him again. You know, I can't, I can't make up my mind. And he liked to listen to him. So that's the situation that's the situation that Herod's in. And I want to say that it's, it's, well, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? I don't know whether you can think of people who sort of are interested in Christian things. Interested. I can think of, I used to go and visit um, one of the shops around the corner, and the proprietor there was always interested. He'd say, oh, come on, Phil. Sit down, now what you got? I've been, I've been looking in the Bible. Tell me what you've been finding. So we'd have a conversation. And, uh, and I'd say, you know, this is about faith in Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But um, now it's interesting this bit about, it's, it's interesting this bit about Babylon. She said, yeah, but it's off slightly, we've gone off topic, you see. Uh, so come back, we'll have another talk another time. Fascinated, interested, but can't come to a conclusion. So I, I don't know whether you can think of, of, of people in that situation. This is a situation that's Herod in. Herod's in. Let's move on. Now, please notice verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. The opportune time. I thought I'd written on there what it was in Greek, but I don't think. Was it the last slide? Ah, where did I put it? Where is it? Oh, at the top. What a silly place to put it. Yeah. Eukairos. Uh, Kairos means a particular season or time, and the U bit, the EU bit, means good, as in a eulogy is a good word. Uh, um, and a Eucharist is, a, well, it's a thankfulness. So it's a, uh, uh, it, this is the Ebkairos, the, a good time, the opportune time. And I wonder what Mark had in mind when he used that word, because it, it, it's opportune in, in many ways. It is a moment of, a moment, a special significant moment. It's a sort of turning point moment. And, and notice how Herod has gone on, I don't know, weeks, months, years, perplexed. And now, 
the die will be cast. The opportune time came. Well, it's, a, it's his birthday, but there's more going on than that. It's a day of spiritual decision, and in, act, in actual case, spiritual disaster. So look at, the, at what happens, verse 21. On his birthday, Herod gave a ban banquet for the high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So I don't know, I better not be too sarcastic about what sort of people they were, but it, it, they're put in terms of being you know, the top dogs uh, of, of Galilean society. So they probably all rolled up in their BMWs and four by fours and uh, uh, stretch limos and all that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a big occasion. And in verse 22, <coughs> the daughter of Herodias, so this is, we presume, Herod's sort of stepdaughter, she comes in and she dances and pleases Herod and his dinner guests. Now, some of it's left to the imagination. So we're not told about the amount of wine that flowed, but I reckon if you look at the way he answers, and then when he wakes up, as it were, the following day, you know, when he reflects on it, when he's sober, how he, uh, he wishes he hadn't done what he'd done. I, I think the wine flowed fairly freely. And it doesn't tell you what sort of dance it was, but you can, given that Rome, it, 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 this isn't sort of Jewish country dancing. Uh, this is, this is, this is um, I don't know, you, 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 well, it's left to the imagination, it's not, it's not described. But I mean, if you were to start thinking Bollywood and then work on from there, I think you'd be, you'd be in the right sort of territory. So she does this dance. How old was she? Uh, she's called a girl in verse 22. The previous time that word was used, girl, was in chapter 5, verse... 42, which was the little girl who had died. Uh, she got up and walked around in 542. She was 12 years old. So, the, so we could be teenage. It's sort of used of, of uh, young women up to the, the age they get married. So we're sort of, I think we're probably thinking teenage, um, perhaps, perhaps early 20s, we don't know. But she she dances and pleases Herod and his dinner guests. And the king says to the girl, you can sort of imagine it, can't you? You can imagine they're all going, oh, fantastic, well done, oh, super. And, uh, um, and so he, he sort of, that was so wonderful. You ask for anything you want and we'll give it to you, my dear. And, uh, and he repeats it. He promises her with an oath whatever you ask I will give you up to half my kingdom. You think that's very rash, isn't it? That's very, very rash. I think he's probably exaggerating, but it, it's a bit unwise to say something like that in public. Uh, and I don't know, what is it? It's showing off, isn't it? It's showing off his generosity, it's showing off how, um, I don't know, yeah, how generous he is, how, how he is, how, how with it he is with young people. I don't know what he's... But it, it's just a rash, foolish thing to say. Uh, and so she doesn't know the answer, and she goes and asks mum, which I think is, is interesting. I think mum has got her on her side, 
and I think mum is scheming and involving daughter in it against her new husband, or without, certainly without bringing him in on it. Uh, so mum, uh, she goes out and asks mum, and what a contrast there is between mum and dad, because Herod has been dithering for months and months about John the Baptist. You know, shall I protect him? Shall I hear another sermon from him? Uh, sh what, what shall I do? You know, he's a good and right man. Sh what, should I set him free? Or, you know, he's been thinking, going round and round in that. But mum, when she gets the opportunity, immediately she says, daughter says, what shall I, what shall I ask for immediately? No hesitation. Ask for his head chopped off on a plate. It's absolutely decisive, isn't it? As soon as the question's asked, give me the head of John the Baptist. And then we now go into rapid motion. At once, the girl, with speed, went to the king with the request, I want you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a plate. So, Herod has been wandering and dithering but it's now too late because he has no his options have suddenly closed down he's made a promise everybody was watching him they're all the leading people he doesn't want to look stupid in front of them uh, and you know he realizes he's been scuppered he's been now what's it stitched up hasn't he he's been stitched up he's greatly distressed because, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he's just got one option, which is straight away to send off, I'm afraid you're going to have to do this now, get me John the Baptist's head, bring it back before dessert is served, you know, before the coffee comes, want it, you know, want it now, don't want to look stupid. So he sent an executioner, verse 27, no legal process, no appeal, no barristers, just head. He immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a plate. He gave it to the girl, she gave it to her mother. Job done, end of story. The quick answer, the immediate reply, the trap is closed. And it's a sorry tale and Herod lived to regret it, didn't he? So when he heard about Jesus, it came back to him. I know who that is. That's the man I beheaded. Do you know how stupid I was? And I think the story is a vivid example of the danger of spiritual dithering. Herod's indecision, that's just copied from the previous uh, slide, He'd arrested him, but he feared him, protected him. He, he, he was fascinated with him. He was perplexed, and so on and so on. He dithered over John, meaning to say, really, he dithered over the gospel because that was what John was telling him. He was telling him the message of, of faith, the message of God, the message of God's kingdom, and he didn't come to any conclusion. And he had the opportunity, which suddenly evaporated. The danger 
of dithering, the danger of being interested but not convinced. Now, who was telling us about this? I don't know where I remember this. Benjamin Franklin, the American scientist, and was he a politician as well? Yeah. He went... Sorry? Is that correct? Yes, okay, Lindsay says it's correct, so it must be correct. Uh, He was there in the days of uh, the preacher, John Wesley? Whitfield, George Whitfield. And he heard George Whitfield speaking. So George Whitfield would have given a very clear, down-the-line, take-it-or-leave-it sort of, put-it-in-your-pipe-and-smoke-it gospel message about Jesus Christ. And Benjamin Franklin went along. He was, uh, he was friends with, uh, with George Whitfield, uh, knew him socially. But what he noticed was he counted the number of people who could hear George Whitfield because he was fascinated with how, how far his voice projected. And he did sums, you know, of the distance and the number of people that were listening. And if you have so many people per square foot, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. Here's somebody who who heard the gospel but never really took on board what it was saying. And I think of uh, the the man in the the shop round the corner who was always interested. Yeah, come sit down. What have you got in your Bible then? Or something like that. But never came to faith. You might think of people, you might think of people in our families who have heard time and again but are always thinking, well, one day I'll come to a conclusion on this. At the moment, you know, it's pretty evenly balanced. I'm fascinated by it, interested in a certain sort of way, but not prepared, actually, to take it on its own terms and say yes. Think about the young people who hear a lot, say, well, when I'm older, then, I, then I'll make a... You know, make a decision, or retired people who say, "Well, I'm, you know, I've got the years years ahead of me, and I, I don't need to think about morbid things like Christianity." But for every person, there comes a point at which, one way or another, no more options, no more chances. And usually, that will come at the end of our lives, won't it? We've had the chances all the way through and there's no more chances. Or it might come that as we go, as we get older, we lose the capacity to think or to take something in. And all our family will be praying for us at that time, but the reality is that the opportunity was years earlier and the door has closed. So this is... This is what this story, I think, is about, the dangers of dithering. And I want to say to everybody here, if that's you, if you're saying, you know, I like to come to church occasionally, like to think about it, fascinating really, interesting these religious people, tell me a little bit more, you know. You know, there's something, something special about those people. And you, you analyze it, analyze it from certain points of view and you're sort of perplexed, not quite sure 
I just go on being not quite sure, I go on being not quite sure and get used to being not quite sure and never actually sort it out with God. It's a warning, isn't it? Don't let the time go by without sorting things out with God. Don't just let it go on. Well, I like the singing. They're friendly people. Spiritual, yeah, I quite like that. Have you sorted out that you're a sinner? Have you, have you said, have you got that bit right? Have you understood that what the whole point of this is that you need Jesus Christ to die to forgive your sins? Have you got that bit straight? You're a sinner. Have you got it straight about what Jesus did on the cross? that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. He took in himself the wrath of God that was due to us. That's what he was doing. No one else has done that. It can't be found anywhere else. That's exactly what you need, and you need to connect with that in a real way. Have you got that bit sorted out? Have you got it sorted out that how you connect is by taking the promises of God and believing them? Like the song that we sang, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. We've got that bit clear. It's not about being a nice person. It's not about social skills. It's not about, about um, uh, living a good life. It's about believing in Jesus Christ. Have you got that straight? Have you got it straight that human beings are so incapable of spiritual progress that they need to be born again. That's what Jesus says. You are, you are so stuck, you need a complete revolutionary input from God into your life. You need to be reborn. Have you got that bit straight? Have you asked God, have you said to God, oh, that's me, I need to be born again. I need this change, I need this faith. Please do it for me. It's sort of a prayer away. Have you, have you asked God and prayed that and got it sorted out? Because here is the danger of just dithering, of just being so near and yet so far and tolerating it and going on like that until... Let's sing together.